Good morning, everybody. I, uh, some of you may have noticed we got some tables out just for future reference. Feel free to spread out, grab a cup of coffee, have a seat, make yourself at home. It's the house of the Lord. We want you to be comfortable. Uh, hey, I love words, and I love the history of words, uh, the, the change of meaning over time. I just find that whole subject fascinating. And a lot of times as we study the change of meaning uh, of words over time, it kind of shines a light on how our culture has changed over time. Uh, you take a word like flirt, for instance. To flirt with somebody about the mid-16th century, uh, it referred to like a sharp blow or like a sneer that you would give somebody. It had a very different meaning than how we use the word today. But dating and romance rituals in our culture changed over time, and flirt kind of meant to kind of like imitate somebody's body language a little bit. And then it kind of took on this more playful meaning that we have and use it as today. But imagine the awkward situation that you would find yourself in if you hadn't realized the word changed. I mean, you're at the club, right? This is why I don't go to the club right here. But you're at the club, and you see somebody cross the dance floor. They look good, and you think, I'm going to flirt with that person. So you shoot them this look. Like, you're, you're not going to get very many dates that way, are you? Like, you're going to be in a really awkward spot. And that's what happens if we don't realize that words change meaning. We don't realize the context and the agreed upon meaning within a culture. We can land ourselves in a weird spot. And the same is true with a word that we often use in our cultural conversations today. The word justice, or more specifically, social justice. It's a conversation that's happening in our culture in almost every arena of our nation right now, every, every sphere of, of influence. And it's a word that means a particular thing in a particular context today. If we're not aware of it, we can put ourselves in some pretty awkward situations as we're going to talk about today. But understanding justice and understanding social justice is really important for the church, not just so that we can understand the cultural conversation, but so that we can understand who God is and the kind of righteous life he calls us to live. And to that point, we're going to start a brand new sermon series this week out of the book of Amos called Let Justice Roll. That's a line taken from Amos. And in our whole series, is just about what is justice? Why does God care about justice so much? How does the church live out justice in this world? And it's going to be a challenging series. Um, challenging in some ways because the prophets in the Old Testament, their job was to rouse people from their sin. It wasn't to comfort them. And as we encounter the word of the Lord throughout this series, I suspect that we will probably have our own hearts challenged by those words, and that can be challenging. But it will also be challenging because in order to understand Amos's application in our world today, we're going to have to start to wrestle with some, a complicated series of concepts that we're going to start talking about today and just kind of dividing out and parsing and defining what is all this stuff that's going on today? What do we make out of it? Uh, and so that's going to be a challenge. We're going to start that with this message today. I apologize. I'm going to try to make this sound like a sermon and not a seminar, but there's just a lot of information that we're going to have to wrestle through and grapple with together. So with that said, we're going to start our series today with a very fundamental uh, and introductory question. What is justice? If we were to look at the English dictionary, whether it be Merriam-Webster or Oxford's dictionary, we would find a meaning kind of similar to the quality of being just, impartial, and fair. 
And that's helpful for understanding justice a little bit, but that's still kind of vague because what does it mean for something to be fair? What does it mean for something to be just? These are terms that have to be defined even further. And so maybe a better part or a better place to start for us today is to simply ask, why does justice matter to us so much? Why does impartiality and fairness seem like something we even ought to pursue in the first place? So the, that's what we're, we're going to start looking at today. And, and so the, the heart behind this concept of justice, it's not a new thing. It's actually a very old idea. It's the idea that all people matter. Everybody is important. That's a very old idea. There's just something about a human being that deserves dignity and care and concern and compassion. And most of us would say, duh, like everybody knows that. But not everybody does know that, even on a societal level. If you look at a culture uh, like in India today, the caste system still is very prevalent in that culture, even in the modern era. And the caste system, if you're not familiar because of their Hindu heritage, it really doesn't create an impartial, just or fair society. It creates a society in which some people have more value than other people. And this certainly wasn't true in the ancient world either. If we were to look at a, a region of the world called the ancient Near East, and that would have been like Babylon, Assyria, Asher, Hatai, uh, Israel, Philistia, Egypt, like that part of the world where the Bible really takes place. In the ancient Near East, all of these different cultures had creation myths. And the purpose of these myths was not so much to tell us the history of the world, but to explain who people were today, where they came from, and what they're all about. And a lot of these myths are similar to the Genesis story in some ways. Uh, the gods would take mud or they'd take clay or they'd take, um, you know, uh, dirt and they'd spit in it or add blood or saliva or other bodily fluids because they're nasty. Um, and they would just make people out of it. And so it's, it's a similar concept to Genesis in the method. But the, the reason, the purpose for making people is very different in these other myths. Most of the time, human beings were created to serve the gods as slaves because the gods didn't really want to take care of the earth. They didn't want to harvest the fields. And so they wanted to do more leisurely things. They created people to do the drudgery. And along with that, the people would supply the food and the drink for the gods through their worship and their sacrifice. And sometimes people were even created just as a cruel joke. There's one ancient story where a few gods get drunk and then as just sort of a competition, they create people with increasingly severe uh, disabilities. It's just to see who can make the most cruel joke out of a person. It's a very offensive story, but it's a story that has explanatory power. It was meant to tell people, this is who you are. This is why you exist. This is your lot in life. And in almost every instance, that lot was not a very dignified one. But there was one exception across all of these cultures, and it was the king. That person was dignified. The king in all these cultures was considered to be nearly, if not fully, divine. And so that it was said that the king was made in the image of the gods. And he was special. He did have value. He did have dignity. He was important. So you can see in these ancient cultures, there's a very stratified society in which not everybody has equal significance or deserves equal care and compassion. But then in the middle of all of these cultures, there are the Hebrew people who worship a very different kind of God who tells a very different story about mankind and where they came from and what they mean. 
And in that story, in Genesis chapters one through three, we don't read about a stratified society of people of varying values and significances. We don't read about people being created as slaves to do drudgery or as cruel jokes. What we learn is that mankind is created to be kings and queens. And we read about that in Genesis chapter one, verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make mankind, all of them, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So notice the diversity there, yet the equality. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so mankind is created, all of them equally, not as slaves, servants, as jokes, but as image bearers of God. That royal dignity is bestowed upon all mankind. And all mankind, likewise, is given the task of working the earth, not as a slave, not as drudgery, but so that they can cultivate, so that they can curate, so that they can domesticate and enjoy the very garden of God himself. This is a very different picture of humanity that's given to us here. This idea of a society that is just and fair and impartial, this finds its origin in the God of the Bible. Now, societies outside of God certainly tried to create just societies. You can think about uh, Hammurabi's Code, for instance. You probably have heard of that in history class. But if you read through Hammurabi's Code or any of these ancient legal structures, what you find is that while there is a system of laws, they are by no means impartial. There are different statuses, there are different classes in society, and different rules and punishments are applied to different people in different ways. It is not just. The whole thing is unjust by design. This idea of a fair and impartial and just world, this is a gift from God. You might say that that justice in a biblical sense is simply acknowledging this idea that all people are important, that all people are made in the image of God, and justice means treating them accordingly, which kind of demands fairness and impartiality and compassion and mercy and so on. So that's a pretty good understanding of biblical justice where we're going to operate out of. So the opposite of this then, denying that God-given value in people, you could call that injustice. So what happens when injustice takes root in a society? That's where Amos comes in and really starts to illuminate God's feelings on the matter. Amos was a prophet in the Old Testament, a prophet of the Lord, who lived during a time when the Hebrew people were divided into two different kingdoms. In the south, it was a kingdom called Judah. This is where Amos lived. And in the north, it was a kingdom called Israel. And pretty much the entire time, the Israelites in the north experienced more military and political and economic success than their their southern counterpart. And that sounds like a good thing, except that all of the success usually came at the expense of their faithfulness and their integrity. They sold their consciences many times in order to profit. And it came to a point where the Lord couldn't take it anymore. So he calls Amos out of the south to go to the Israelites in the north and to warn them about the impending judgment of their injustices and their sins. So that's the book of Amos in a nutshell. But before he really zeroes in on Israel, God has a lot to say about the neighboring nations in the surrounding vicinity. And that's what we're going to read from this morning. This is Amos chapter 1, verse 3. 
It says, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. So there's a series, like a tirade of judgment oracles that the Amos just launches off like a machine gun at all these other nations. We'll get into that more next week. But they all follow a very similar formula. They start off saying, this is what the Lord says. And then it says, for three sins of, insert the city, even for four, I will not relent. And that's a phrase, if we remember that these were oracles, they were spoken out loud. This is a rhetorical device. It's meant to give a a sense of escalation. Like you guys have had these three sins, these three strikes. Wait a minute, now make that four, four of these. It gives this sense of overflowing sin. Something has pushed God over the edge. They've gone too far. Something has crossed the line and now he's going to hold them accountable. That's what that kind of gives the impression of. And then it's followed by a charge, all right? What did this particular city do? In the case of Damascus, it says that they threshed Gilead, which was a a neighboring nation, with sledges having iron teeth. And that could be literal. It's probably figurative. Uh, But it paints a, a pretty gruesome picture. Threshing is what you would do at harvest time. You get all your grain, your your, uh, crops together, and you take them over to this big flat stone surface, and then you would separate the grain from the chaff. And you could do that different ways. Sometimes you like winnow it with a fork. Sometimes you let animals walk over it. But if you really wanted to do an effective job of mincing up all of that chaff, you would get a sledge with iron teeth on it, and you just start whacking and dragging and slashing at it. And it was kind of like pulled pork in a way. Like, if you ever smoked a pork butt, you know that, like, if you do it right, you can just kind of pull it away in these strands. And that's why it's called pulled pork. But sometimes those strands are a little big. And people like their pulled pork a little finely minced at times. And so if you want that, you got to get your forks and you got to just start tearing it apart, you know, ripping at the flesh. If you're real fancy, you get those as seen on TV Wolverine claws and you just, you know, start slashing at it. But you're just tearing the flesh away, right? And it's kind of that idea, except instead of pork, it's people. And that's the picture and the charge that God levies here. He is saying to Damascus, now border conflicts, they're very common. People fought all the time. But he's saying, you guys have crossed a line. You have been exorbitantly cruel and inhumane to your enemies. They had overlooked the value and the dignity that people have because they were made in the image of God and they have treated them like animals. And for this, God says, I cannot relent. I cannot let this go. I cannot look away. So that's Damascus. Then following this is God's judgment. We don't have time for that this morning. So we're going to move on to another charge. This is in verse 6. It says, this is what the Lord says for three sins of Gaza, which is in Philistia, the Philistines. Even for four, I will not relent because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. So again, we have that formula. Something has crossed the line. Something has sent God over the edge here. And in this case of Gaza, the Philistines, it's how they took this community captive. And we're kind of unsure the nature of this community. It says in the Hebrew word sometimes can mean the whole community or the entire community, which would include women and children. But that word can also mean a peaceful community in some instances. Which would mean that this was just a completely unsuspecting village, minding its own business, not doing anything to provoke anybody, that may have even had a peace agreement with the Philistines, and they came in and shackled everybody and carted them away. One option is not really better than the other. They're both pretty messed up. 
But what's even worse, the cherry on this unjust cake is that after taking them captive, they turned them into commodities. They turned people into things for the purpose of profit and completely dehumanized them in the process. And for this, God says, I will not look away. There will be judgment. You're probably seeing a theme develop here. And, and we could go through the whole list of these cities. I realized as I was writing this, it's Family Sunday. I don't want to say these things and then stick you with the car ride home to explain them all to your kids because it does get pretty hairy. If you think this stuff's bad, don't read the rest of them because people just treat each other terrible. And the value of human life, the dignity that is inherently belonging to people made in the image of God is overlooked entirely. Now, all sin offends God, okay? It's all counter to him. There isn't sin that he just says, yes, we'll just brush that under the rug. That's not really that big a deal. It all matters. But there are certain sins, sins of injustice that overlook the dignity inherent in his creation that really chap his behind. And the fuse seems to be incredibly short when it comes to degrading and devaluing people, sins of injustice. And if you're a parent who has a child and you've seen that child get picked on, you already understand this way better than you think. Because you love that child. That child has immense value to you. That child is special. And to watch somebody completely overlook that and trample on it both breaks your heart and inflames your wrath, does it not? Mama and Papa Bear got claws and they're coming out. Like, we get this. That's how God feels. Just ratchet that up a few thousand degrees. It grieves him. Injustice grieves him. And that's why Amos was sent to Israel in the first place. We're going to get into it more next week. But this degradation of human life, this objectification of people, all of this is taking place in the land of Israel. The courts are corrupt. The leaders are corrupt. The economic practices are set up to disenfranchise and take advantage of the less fortunate and the downtrodden. It is a land of injustice. And that injustice not only grieves God's heart, but because it's a nation that bears his name, infuriates him. It is counter to everything he stands for. And so because he is grieved, he sends Amos to go and to preach. Because when God is grieved, the people of God are grieved. And they act. And that's what brings us to a point where we can start to talk about this thing called social justice. Or justice as it is practiced and merited out on a societal level. Social justice is one of those words, kind of like flirt, that has experienced a change over its existence. This is the part of the sermon, by the way, where we're gonna to start to dive into some more technical terms to understand what's happening in our world. This term has changed over the years. And if we find ourselves assuming that it means one thing when our world actually thinks it means another thing, we could land in a very awkward position as believers and as a church. So we wanna understand this word. So let's start at the beginning. Social justice is not a new concept. It's actually a very old concept coined in the church. That term was coined by uh, a Jesuit priest. Jesuits were an offshoot or a, a branch of Catholicism. A Jesuit priest named Luigi Taparelli di Azeglio in the 1840s. And he was writing, um, trying to find a way to practice this idea called biblical justice that we've been talking about. What would that look like if it was institutionalized and practiced on a societal level? That's what he wrote about. 
And the church took his work and developed it over time to the point that social justice is actually a part of the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. And in the catechism, it's described in this way. Society ensures social justice when it provides the conditions that allow associations or individuals, so groups or individuals, to obtain what is their due according to their nature and their vocation. And nature and vocation there, by the way, that's not talking about our jobs. That's talking about your God-ordained role in the universe. That, that, that story in Genesis, how God made you in his image, there's value and dignity with that, but there's also that responsibility to rule over the earth and subdue it in his name as his regent, to live your life faithfully as you do your labor. That's what that's talking about. Social justice is linked to the common good and the exercise of authority. So this really is a biblical definition of things. It's really just what we've been talking about, recognizing the God-given value in all people because they're made in his image and treating them accordingly. It's how just people have just relationships with one another because we both are made by a just God. This is a pretty good thing. This is why the church historically has been very involved in issues of societal justice. This is why orphanages exist. In the ancient world prior to the church, particularly in the Roman Empire, orphans did not matter. People didn't have this fuzzy feeling about children. But children are made in the image of God. And so the church took it upon themselves to treat them justly and to create orphanages. Hospitals in the Roman Empire were very different. They were oftentimes just temples that you would go to and you'd make a sacrifice to the god Asclepius in most cases. And then you'd have some ritual and some prayer and that was supposed to cure you of your ailment. Maybe you'd get like a potion or a tonic or something. But those temples were open to everybody. But the church said everybody matters. And so we're going to take care of everybody and give mercy to everybody regardless of station, class, or religious belief. Hospitals came about because of social justice. Public schools exist because of social justice. During the days of the, uh, the Protestant Reformation, it was uh, John Calvin up in Geneva who said, you know, everybody deserves to be able to read the Bible. But in order to do that, everybody needs to know how to read. So they started public schools. They were open not just to the aristocracy or to the lords and ladies, but to everybody. So that everybody could learn how to read the Bible. Social justice is why the church has traditionally advocated for the poor and the elderly and the disenfranchised and the infirm and, and all of the other causes that the church works for globally. Social justice is a very good thing that was found its origin in the church, was developed by the church for a long, long time. And then something started to change a little bit, really not that long ago. And we can see this change in the writings of a man named John Rawls. Now, he did not start this change. He's just characteristic of it, and we can see the change in his writings. John Rawls was a, a liberal political philosopher in the 1970s, uh, and he wrote something called The Theory of Justice. And in that book, he writes, Our concern is solely with the basic structure of society and its major institutions, and therefore with the standard cases of social justice. Those last few lines, the standard cases of social justice, what that means is that there has been this development within a, a secular interest that has focused on social justice for some time. And what we see in John Rawls' writings is that social justice has really left the sphere of the church and really has become more of a focus of secular institutions and groups. And secular, by the way, just means non-religious or, or uh, non-spiritual, so just kind of those overtones. 
And I'm going to gloss over a lot of history here, but with that adoption of social justice into the secular realm, that brings us to today where we have this definition as defined by the Oxford Dictionary of the English Language. Social justice is justice in terms of or regarding the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within society. So this is the standard definition. All other academic definitions kind of blossom off of this foundation. Now, without God and his God-given dignity and the image of God idea driving what changes social justice, we have to have some other worldview that guides us, some other code of morals and ethics, some lens through which we see things. And John Rawls and, and everybody that followed after him, they weren't operating from that, that theistic, that godly point of view. So what was driving them and what's driving this social justice movement today? Well, the ideology most prevalent within the social justice movement today is that of Marxism. Um, and if you're not familiar with the, the field of philosophy, it's the, the works of a man named Karl Marx, who is most often sometimes attributed as the father of communism. That might ring some bells. And that might also put this definition, the distribution of wealth, uh, um, let me make sure I get it right, wealth, opportunities, and privileges into maybe a slightly different light. Marx is a very influential, well, he's dead now, but he was a very influential person and continues to be through this field and this development. A lot of Karl Marx's philosophy is built off of something called conflict theory, which essentially assumes that most of human history can be explained as a series of conflicts over limited resources. That's sort of the engine that drives his whole thought process. It is an inherently atheistic philosophy uh, meaning that there's not really any room for God to be had. And because everything is divided between, is seen through the lens of conflict, most people can be put into one of two categories, either the oppressed or the oppressor. Now, you may have heard those terms showing up a lot in cultural conversations lately, the oppressed and the oppressor. The role of social justice, per that definition, is to distribute or redistribute wealth, privileges, and opportunities from the oppressor to the oppressed so that they can live upright and receive what they are deserving of. So that's the basic understanding of social justice today. But before we can do that, we have to understand who the oppressor and who the oppressed are. I mean, you got to have some definitions here. And for this, Marxism and the social justice movement today turns to something called critical theory. Um, critical theory is sort of an umbrella term. From that, we have a lot of different disciplines, queer theory, um, justice, or critical justice theory, uh, critical feminist theory, um, critical race theory, a term maybe you've heard more recently. All of these fall under the, the umbrella of critical theory. Critical theory is an analytical tool uh, rooted in Marxist ideology, and it seeks to analyze uh, society not so much for the purpose of understanding relationships between people, but for the purpose of challenging them. In fact, it, it would describe itself as analyzing society for the purpose of revealing and challenging power structures. Remember, whole thing rooted in conflict. So it's by nature a challenging um, lens through which to see people. So how does critical theory identify the oppressor? Well, critical theory would look at what's called a master narrative or prevailing ideologies in a society. 
uh, that would mean who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong? What is culturally valuable? What is culturally undesirable? These are the things that prevailing ideologies guide. And those ideologies are established and protected and perpetuated by seats of power, things like government office, uh, the academy, the press, the church. These are the people, people in control, that kind of establish, protect, and perpetuate these master narratives. So if we can identify those people and what we have in common, then we can identify what this movement calls the hegemony or the ruling class. There's a nice Marxist term for you you might recognize. So who is the hegemony in the United States today? Uh, just There's a lot, so we'll put it on the board here. The hegemony today is defined as straight, white, male, cisgendered, meaning biologically male, able-bodied, native-born, and Christian. Uh, this is the ruling class, as it's said, in our society today. This is those who have created the power structures, prevailing ideologies, who protect it and perpetuate it. This is the oppressor. It's this guy. And a lot of you sitting here, honestly. And critical theory comes just short of saying simply, even if you don't participate in these power structures, even if you aren't aware that you're oppressive, even if you don't have an oppressive bone in your body, simply by nature of your identity in this culture, you are oppressive. Now, proponents of critical theory would say, well, that's overreacting. And I would say, you come right up to the line of saying that. It's a pretty challenging by nature way of viewing the world. So that's the oppressor. The oppressed then is anybody who's not that stuff. Everybody has varying levels of oppression that they experience if they don't meet that definition. And this is where we find another familiar term, intersectionality. If you're not, you know, straight, white, male, cisgendered, able-bodied, all that stuff, then you experience oppression every time there's a category you don't fit into. So a woman, for instance, you would experience one intersection of oppression because you're not a man. Uh, a Latina woman would experience two intersections of oppression because she's not white or a man. And in this weird kind of upside-down hierarchy, the more oppression you experience, somehow the more credible you are in relaying the unseen and unknown truths of what's really going on in the world, which is why some people seem to have a louder voice and other people seem to have voices stifled in what's going on. Is a lot of this like making sense? Are lights kind of coming on and, and dots connecting as to how we got to this really weird place in our culture right now? So this is where we're at. We have the oppressed and the oppressor or the oppressor and the, the oppressed. Social justice, like we said, its goal is to take resources, wealth, opportunities, privileges, from the oppressor and distribute them equitably, not equally, but equitably amongst the oppressed, right? But the hegemony, the ruling class, they're the one holding all the cards. They're holding the seats of power. And we can't distribute those resources unless we can somehow gain those seats of power. If only we could get this, then we could make society fair and just and equal. Does that sound familiar to anybody, any students of history here? This is what it's all about, the seats of power. If we can hold those, if we can get the people to give us those, or if we can get somebody to represent the various demographics within our nation and promise to uphold their best interests, even if they conflict with one another, man, that's how we're going to make this a fair and just society. Just like it was just in, in 
Russia, and it was just in China, and it was just in Vietnam, and it was just in North Korea, and in Cuba, and in Laos, and every place else that has adopted these same philosophical underpinnings. They're just bastions of civil rights, aren't they, those places? But that's the same philosophical underpinning that's driving this whole scheme today. I'm not trying to say this to be scary and say communism and wave the warning flag, but I want us as a church to be aware of what's really going on and what's really driving what we call the social justice movement, or as it's more accurately called, the critical social justice movement of today. And that term, critical social justice, is the term used by the leading academic voices in this movement because they very intentionally want to connect it to critical theory and all of the academic development therein. This is not a neutral thing. This is a system, a scheme that is built on conflict. And it only creates animosity and division within our people. Do you notice that things today seem really divided in our culture? Like really, really divided. And everybody's angry all the time. It's because they are. Everybody's really divided and angry all the time because that's what this system does. It insists that we define one another by increasingly narrow categories. You can't bring people together if you insist on driving them further and further apart. And it creates animosity because we insist, or the system insists, on fixating upon the otherness of our neighbor instead of our commonality. And even more so insists that that otherness is the reason why your life is difficult and isn't going the way that you want it to go. It's a system that breeds animosity. It's a narrative that tells people this is where you fit in life and why you experience life the way that you do. It bears striking resemblance to those ancient Near Eastern creation myths that degraded people in the same way. And we cannot get on board with this church. Should the church support the social justice movement as it stands today? Heck no, no. Because it is a movement that seeks to undermine the very fabric of this faith. And I know that sounds really like extreme. Even I, I hear that and I'm like, I don't know. I kind of recoil at that a little bit because it's called social justice. God cares about justice. Injustice grieves him. Injustice grieves his people. Why shouldn't the church be on board with this? Because the term has changed. It doesn't mean today what it used to mean. And if we insist upon using it in an antiquated way, assuming it means the same old thing, we are going to land ourselves in a very awkward position of supporting, endorsing, and sometimes funding a movement that seeks to undermine this faith. Do you remember the cultural hegemony? The ruling class of people? We'll put it back up there. It's, uh, it's, we'll, we'll put it back up there eventually. And it's coming. There we go. Okay, straight, white, male, cisgendered, able-bodied, native-born. You see that last one? Christian. You are part of the oppression. By nature of your faith, Christianity is viewed as an oppressive force and an engine of oppression in this whole scheme. And there is no parsing this out and supporting part of it. It's an all or nothing endeavor. We can't just get on board the racial equality part of it and say we don't want to deal with the rest of it. We can't just get on board the immigration part of it and say we don't want to deal with the rest of it. Because this whole scheme 
will not stop. And justice, as defined by the social justice movement, will not be achieved until the entire hegemony, your faith included, has been addressed. That's what's really going on here. So should the church support the social justice movement as it stands today? Absolutely not. Now here's the thing. The social, critical social justice movement exists and continues to gain steam because everybody has eyes. There is real injustice in this world. That's undeniable. We may disagree about the extent of racism or the nature of racism in our country, but here's the reality. Racism really does exist on some level and it's evil. There are legitimate challenges that people attempting to immigrate into this nation legally, going through all the right course of action, face that is a little unfair. There is legislation in place that has and continues to disenfranchise segments of our population nationwide. There are legitimately homeless people that don't know what to do, that don't know where to go, that don't know about the systems put in place to help them. There are legitimate injustices in this world. And just because the social justice movement of today is defective does not mean that we as the church just get to rinse our hands of those things and say that's their problem. Because for all of the terminology and the worldview and the culture shifts that we've talked about today, one thing has not changed. All people are still important because our God says all people are important. Jesus died on a cross so that all people, regardless of age, regardless of sex, regardless of ability, regardless of nation, regardless of any other factor, could be saved through his grace. His sacrifice says that every, voice, every life is invaluable. Our faith demands that we take injustice in our world very seriously. Because if everybody else doesn't matter indiscriminately, then we don't matter. The Bible's not true if every life doesn't really matter. Because God said at the very beginning, let us make all man in our image. Let them all be kings and queens. Let them all work my land. Let them all belong to me. Let them all have this inherent value of being sons and daughters of the creator. That's what our God declares. And so we as the church must take issues of injustice very seriously. And that's what the rest of this series is about. For the next four weeks, we're going to be unpacking how do we become, not that we're not, but how do we better serve justice as defined by our God in our community? And I hope that you'll join me because honestly, I don't have the answers. I want to figure that out together. How can we practice this biblical justice that treats our neighbors with the importance that God has given them today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your truth and for your guidance. We thank you for declaring that we are important, that our lives matter, regardless of any characteristic that may be attached to our identity, Father. Our primary defining factor is that we're yours, and you say our lives matter. You sent your son to die on a cross because our lives were important to you. So let us recognize that in ourselves, but let us recognize that in our neighbors as well. And let us treat them with mercy and compassion and fairness, with generosity and charity, and with joy and with cheer. Let us 
practice integrity and honesty in our dealings with our neighbors, at our jobs, at our schools, in our homes. Father, let your church not just sacrifice this term social justice, but let us reclaim it for what it once was, simply treating people the way that you designed mankind to treat one another because you say they matter. Lord, we thank you for this calling and this privilege and this gift. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.